So there's a lot of luck that goes into everything. If you can figure everything out and guarantee a business is going to be successful, you know, sign me up. I'll, I'll be the COO for your company anytime. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armin will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have a guest here who's COO at Camivision, but also he has been CPO in charge of product. Great experience. Welcome to our show, Jan Renahan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Armand. I'm excited to talk. Fantastic. So if you could, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and then what the company does, what kind of problems you guys are solving, I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started in finance and accounting. So a little bit of a non-traditional background for somebody that's that's coming to product. But I really wanted to start in an area where I felt like I could understand how business works and functions. And so I got my CPA with KPMG and then moved over to uh, FP&A, financial planning and analysis, to get a, bit, a little bit closer to the operations of, of business. And while I was there, I got some great insight into how different functions within an organization work and what's important to them, did a lot of BOD reporting, and did a lot of system implementation there as well for enterprise planning, business intelligence systems, ERP systems, and figured out that I really had a passion for product. And so while I was going back and getting my MBA from Berkeley, went out and started a couple of companies, but one big one called SBN, Simple But Needed, with one of my, my classmates, and that was in the environmental health and safety space for SaaS, and did that for about 10 years, and, and there I was the COO as well. Did a lot of the product, did a lot of the, the HR, the everything, sales, and got some great experience. We had some really big clients. And after being there for about 10 years, company still going strong, I was ready for a, a new challenge. And I found Camivision. And what excited me about Camivision was it had massive growth. So it had grown 30x over the previous uh, four years. And it was in a space that I think is about to explode, which is Vision AI, which we can talk about a, a little bit more over the course of this interview. In, in a great team, you know, a fantastic leadership team and a really strong team when I came and interviewed. And so just kind of fell in love with the company, fell in love with the opportunity. I can just see where this this entire space is headed. And so decided to join up. And it's been about a year now since I joined. Like you mentioned, I started out heading up product and I've been promoted to the COO now. So taking on a little bit more responsibility. And I just see the future being very bright for us. Yeah, fantastic. No, I think that's... Uh... Really, I see product managers uh, from many different variety of backgrounds, and I think finance is excellent background to me because that gives you the perspective of the business that you can bring to product. And then, of course, now being CEO, 
Now, the product knowledge that you bring is also helpful. So that's fantastic. So uh, tell us a little bit about Camivision. I know that you guys, uh, you know, on the IoT side and edge and technologies, these kind of things. But what kind of normal use cases you go after over there? Yeah, so Cami started out as a consumer IP camera. So competing with Blink and Ring and Wise, we have about 15 million cameras with our software installed uh, as of right now. So we're kind of the biggest vision AI company you've never heard of for, for most people. And that was surprising to me when I learned it, but it's because we partner with a bunch of hardware companies and we focus primarily on the software. Now, what we've done is we've developed expertise on running AI on the edge as part of our consumer business. And we've abstracted that now and we're turning it into a vision AI platform that can be applied to different use cases. And so what that means is essentially we're finding use cases where running AI on the edge makes a lot of sense. We're building solutions for those use cases on top of the platform that we're developing. You guys are located in, for the most part, I think the headquarters actually is in San Jose in California, right? Yeah, we're in San Jose with teams in India and China as well. Okay, so kind of working remotely with some other team members. I, I looked at you know your your website and LinkedIn, and it seems like there are some new events you have, and there are particular use cases that caught my eye. Like for example, with regard to you know people falling, for example, the camera can detect it. And can you tell us a little bit about that kind of use cases? It's very interesting. It's kind of combination of software bring the intelligence and being a smart and the hardware, you know, through a very, as you said, very low cost kind of hardware. Yeah, absolutely. So the first solution that we're rolling out on our platform, our vision AI platform is for elder care. We're calling it Cami Care. And what this solution can do is it runs AI on the edge on cameras that are quite affordable. And those cameras can then detect when people fall down and send an alert to a caretaker. So this is a game changer because you have visual verification of a fall that's happening as compared to some solutions that are out there right now where you rely on somebody pushing a button. In the case of a, the push button, what's called the PERS, push button emergency response system, it relies on someone actively pushing it. Well, in some cases with elders, they might not have the mental faculty to, to push a button or they might forget it or they might fall down at night and not have it handy. Um, there's all sorts of problems. So with the Vision AI-based solution, it's much more, it's much more passive solution where it can detect when they fall, whether or not they do anything really. And it can alert people right away. And so this can have a huge benefit in terms of the outcomes for, for these uh, residents at these, at these various homes. And so we're very excited. Uh, we're coming to the market and the big differentiator for us, there's some solutions that are out there already, is we're able to run AI on very affordable cameras. So we have edge AI chips from some of our partners. Uh, we have these fall models that can run locally. So it doesn't necessarily rely on needing to stream up to the cloud all the time. And they're, they're quite accurate. They're you know, 99% accurate in terms of detecting falls. And so it's coming to market. It's the first major use case. And the reason that we selected it is because it's a major problem around the, the country and the world, really. And so this is really a, the first practical Vision AI application that we're going after. But there's a lot of other ones in the future that we'll continue to, to roll out and go after as well. Well, makes sense. Yeah, as you say, just, you know, having the camera and the intelligence that you understand what's going on like a you know human being essentially but you are building use case by use case so narrowing down on each of them and laser focused on that use case but i can see the future maybe 10 20 years from now 
that these kind of dots can be connected and it can really, you know, all of the libraries that are being built and all of the intelligence that are being built, how fascinating it can be and how helpful that can be. So definitely that's a very interesting domain to follow and see the growth. Um, in, in your background, since you are coming, you know, you have the knowledge of finance, you have the knowledge of the business, then you, you know, look at the product, you look at the, the overall business. How do you see the journey from your perspective when you start a company at the early days and then you are signing up customers or not even early days, but each customer starts from zero, nothing, maybe a prospect, maybe a name, and then become more and more more kind of an opportunity on both sides so you you know them better they know you better how do you see that journey from your perspective based on you know all of the uh, background and experience you have yeah the the first thing is to understand the the customer and their problem and to try to figure out if there's a business there so what type of business model you could put in place to solve it and can it can it be solved with software or is it a different type of solution so in order to do that, it's really about having lots and lots of conversations with people in the field that have the problem. So you're, you're verifying before you ever put your hands on keyboard. From those conversations, what ends up happening is you can come up with a thesis and hypothesis in terms of how we can solve this and start to narrow down on the key elements that need to be built in order to solve the solution. And then, of course, you can continue to verify that with the market. So a lot of these conversations are about being very honest with people about this. This is a problem that I think you're an expert please let, let's talk together, have a conversation and, and help me verify if this is or isn't a problem. And then you're sort of having a lot of conversations as well to figure out how much you're willing to pay, how big of a, a, a problem is it? Is it a nice to have or need to have? But a lot of it is about establishing trust early on and showing yourself to be an equal partner in terms of these types of conversations about solving problems. That trust that you are establishing, and you mentioned you alluded to a number of factors. Of course, product is part of it because it can deliver and solve the problem they have. What else on the business side can help to establish that trust? What are the other factors in addition to the product? Because there are SaaS companies out there. Many of them may provide the product. So that part is the part that many of them share. They have a product, they go to market. Most likely the product can work well. And then the competition moves up, more and more SaaS companies within the domain. What else they need to pay attention? Why, you know, some are doing better than others, even if product is equally the same or maybe a slightly better or worse. Even sometimes the product is not as good as the other one, but they're making better business out of it. What other factors we have that helps SaaS companies to pay attention to and do in order to establish that trust that accelerates the business? A lot of it is about establishing your credibility based on your background, how you speak to them, do you actually understand their problems and what they're facing? So a lot of times you find a stakeholder that might not be the most senior person or the decision maker at a company, and you're gonna to wanna to empower that person, make sure that they felt hurt, let them know that you understand what their buyer journey is gonna be like so that they're gonna to have to eventually convince a VP or C-level person at their company. And so the more that you understand that and, and you're not just trying to sell all the time, but you're actually trying to solve problems, the more successful you're going to be. And there's lots of resources out there where you can, you can learn about how to you know, sell into enterprises. But for the most part, my experience has been just connecting and saying, hey, what can I do to help you? Here's what I've seen be successful in the past. Here's some material that you can share. Let's set up some additional calls to make sure that all the questions that you have are answered before we go up to that next level 
and then just being present and honest and working your way up up the chain and uh, con- convincing them and showing them that they have a problem and that you can help solve it. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So what elements may prohibit or may create challenges for SaaS companies not to do what you just described? You know, if I'm a SaaS company and I maybe wanted to do what you said, but I couldn't, or it's more difficult for me to do it. I mean, there are many different elements and factors, but have you experienced directly, indirectly, or you are aware of any of these that you may read somewhere that some companies actually, you know, they have tougher kind of, you know, situation to really do that. I mean, for for some companies, it's easier. What does make that easy or difficult for a company, especially the ones that have a challenge to do that? What are the factors that you have observed? I, I think early on, you have to really grind. You have to go out there, have the conversations. You're putting a lot of time into figuring out these problems and finding the commonalities across different potential customers. As your hypothesis forms and you're able to validate that hypothesis in terms of what the problems are and how you solve it, what you can start to do is develop content and automate different parts of the processes to to do some of the selling for you. So that could be setting up webinars, that could be creating white papers, it could be more marketing material, but things that reach a broader audience so that your customers are educated before they come and talk to you. I mean, drip campaigns is another great way to go with, with some of this education. For the most part, though, it's just going to be trial and error. And there's not really a shortcut to, to it, in my experience anyway, that you just have to try things out. If it, if it works, continue that process and carry on. If it doesn't work, uh, cut bait and, and try something else until you can find the messaging and the approach that, that works for your specific situation. And do you believe in luck? For example, you have a lot of use cases in front of you, right? So let's say when you choose this use case and put the resources and time to make it happen, and that takes six months, nine months, 12 months, depending on the level of effort and all of the things that you have to line up in order to make that happen on different parts, product, marketing, sales, everybody needs to really you know, support that use case to make that a success. Well, what if you could use another use case 12 months ago and it, you would have been in a totally different position and you don't know actually because you just chose this one and you would say in some at some degree that it can be a little bit sometimes a matter of luck because we cannot predict everything and even if we could predict everything internally, externally we cannot even have any idea what's going to happen. So... Do you believe that partially the success that you are going to get, it's because you were lucky or you were, you, didn't, you were not lucky or you're one of those people who would say, I don't believe in luck. It's just the parameters that I see are way more important than just being lucky. So there's a lot of luck that goes into everything. If you can figure everything out and guarantee a business is going to be successful, you know, sign me up. I'll, I'll be the CEO for your company anytime for the most part. It, there, there is an element to luck. Now, what you're trying to do, it's all about risk mitigation from, from my perspective anyway. And you can look at lots of different markets and try to figure out which one, which one is there an opening? Where, where is the competition maybe weaker? Where do we think the practical applications of this, this technology apply? Where are the areas where the technology wouldn't allow it before due to cost? So, for example, when we're looking at at fall detection, previously you needed quite expensive hardware in order to do vision AI technology. The big differentiator for us coming in is we already have scale 
from the 15 million devices and, and millions of users that we have from our consumer business, we know how to run solutions at scale. We know how to run AI on the edge on more affordable cameras. And that's sort of a game changer in terms of being able to go after a market like, like elder care, because we're not relying on $300 cameras like some of the competition would. So luck plays a part, but it's also, that's, that's based on a lot of market research. It's based on talking to people that are experts in the space. We're doing as much due diligence as we can to try to de-risk it ahead of time. But of course, there's always aspects of luck of, is this, is this message resonating with the person that's looking to buy it? Did a competitor decide to come out in the time that we started from, from you know, the time that we launched? You know, that can happen sometimes where a big competitor comes out. But for the most part, I think you try to de-risk things as much as possible and hope that, that luck comes on your side. So what you say is it takes a lot of hard work to get lucky. Yes. And the other thing I hear from you is really timing. You know, sometimes you need to really have a good timing in mind because if you start early, the technology is not there to support you. Even the same use case, the same market, it may not go forward. So you have to have that in mind that, you know, this is the right timing. Some people believe that actually timing is number one in aspect of being successful or not. What's your take on that part based on the experience that you have? I totally agree with it, quite frankly. And it's one of the reasons that I'm attracted to the Vision AI uh, market right now. I think five years ago that this market was going was a really tough space because of the hardware. There, there were players that were coming in, but the use cases that they could go after were only use cases where people were willing to pay a lot, a lot of money, a high ASP. What we're seeing now is because of the commoditization of some of this hardware, it's becoming much, much less expensive to roll the hardware component out, which was a gating factor. Software, there's tons of open source. It's been easy to build software for, t- for 10 years, I would say, in, in my opinion. But with the hardware becoming more commoditized, our advantage is we know how to deal with that type of hardware. We're sort of experts. We have the relationships. We've been doing it for our, for our consumer space. So I think it's a combination of, of timing and being in the right place and you know, finding the right company to, to roll with and really using your competitive advantages to capitalize on opportunities. For us, the fact that we already had an existing business that's been around for eight years, we already have some scale, that gives us certain advantages going after this market that, say, a new startup wouldn't have in terms of pricing, in terms of the base of connections that we already have in in the world. In a way, we are fortunate to be in software world, right? In technology world, technology is impacting people's life or positively impacting their life in an unprecedented, I would say, way in our history. So if you go back, you know, and software is fairly new. We are talking about really something that didn't exist, you know, maybe or was almost non-existent 50 years ago. I mean, and, and, and so it's a very short history, but it's a lot of impact. It has changed everybody's life. It's hard to imagine the world without these technologies and software. At the same time, you know, every decade we see a new kind of wave of these technologies that make it even better. If you look back at 10 years, you know, last 10 years, mobile came, faster connections became, became a reality, and then uh, SaaS became a reality. Even on the revenue side and revenue model, you know, subscription was a gift to software companies so they could better sustain their business, grow their business that in it, that ultimately will benefit everyone. So a lot of good changes on any aspect from revenue model, from 
infrastructure, from delivery methods that we have and everything. As a software company, what do you love to see? What is your wish list? What is, you know, if you had a magic wand to kind of ask for something, what else could happen that makes, you know, the software in general and maybe some of the companies that you know can make their life easier? The same way that, for example, if you look back 10 years ago, if mobile was not there, smart devices, or if connection was not as fast, as great as today, that we are just doing video conferencing, you know, at any point to any point with no problem. And we take it for granted and it was not possible just 20 years ago that easily. What else you would say that's probably what, you know, is in my wish list to see in the next 10 years coming that helps software companies in particular, the ones that you know, but maybe in general software industry. Yeah. So, I mean, my biggest, the biggest item on my wish list is that Kami Vision becomes the platform for Vision AI. If we can do that, you know, what we would be able to do is enable Vision AI for a lot of other companies as well by integrating in with our backend. And what that can do is make Vision AI essentially turnkey and really democratize it and get it out into the world. So all the hard work we've done in terms of building partnerships with manufacturers, building out a platform that can manage AI and use an AI ML pipeline to update that AI and prove it over time, and even manage the, the storage, the on-off of the camera, every single element of this camera, the firmware, that could all just be plugged in and turn on. It's just going to sort of change the world is what I think. And a lot of these use cases where, again, it was cost prohibitive, people will be able to tackle in a much shorter amount of time, essentially. So that technology in terms of what we're building, being able to democratize Vision AI, roll it out into other industries. I mean, like I said, we're starting with elder care, but we're going to go into some of the areas as well, or we're going to partner with other people in those areas. So for example, if you talk about agriculture, and recognizing when fruit is rotten. When you talk about environmental health and safety, where I used to work in the past and recognizing when somebody's wearing a hard hat or not, the use cases go on and on and on. We're not necessarily going to build the solutions for all those use cases. We might partner with other innovative companies or established companies, and they can leverage our vision AI technology. They don't have to build it from scratch. So in a lot of ways, I see what we're building our platform as a, a natural extension over the next five, 10 years that other companies can leverage. Do you think that's the trend that, for example, most of these applications in the market may separate into two layers and one is the platform underneath and one is the service that looks like application or functions on top of it and they will kind of separate themselves into these two layers. So some of them will become platform providers and some of them will become more solution or whatever you name it on top of that. Because right now you see a lot of companies that provide both as a bundle. They are not decoupling these two. So when you go there, you see a little bit of platform, you see a little bit of kind of solution and application there. Do you think that would be something that you would expect as a you know a software person to see more often coming in the coming years? Absolutely. Because the cost and the speed of getting a solution out is much, much faster when you're launching a new company if you can leverage something that's already been built and been tested. For comparison's sake, the Vision AI platform that we're building takes a couple weeks to integrate with. It would take a team of 10 people probably 12 to 18 months to build the same thing from the ground up. And you wouldn't have the relationships with the hardware manufacturers. But you kind of see that across the board with a lot of solutions. If we want to send text messages, we don't build a solution to send text messages. We, we integrate with an existing service. When we want to send email drip campaigns, we don't build a solution to send emails ourselves. We integrate with another solution. And that saves us a massive amount of time across the board in terms of 
the ability to deliver a product. It's similar to what happens with open source. Sometimes you use open source technology. It just speeds up software development. Same sort of thing with, with services, infrastructure services. It allows you to focus on your core competencies. And in, our, in this case for us, you know, the, the elder care fall detection and the consumer products are the areas where we really want to focus and invest our resources, not in building out sort of more peripheral uh, te- technological capability. So that's more specializing essentially. So you, 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 you th- that, that makes perfect sense. It has happened in any industry and it will happen in software industry as well. Relatively speaking, our industry is younger than medicine or it's healthcare or, or construction or any other field. And if you look at those, you know, they have been specialized more and more and more. People in those fields are kind of, you know, focusing, you know, laser focusing actually in one domain rather than doing a lot of things at once. And the ones who actually could do that are the ones who are more successful. So most likely what I hear from you is you would expect software companies who learn to specialize. They are the ones who are going to be more successful and win over competition. And what's what's surprising as well is big companies are figuring this out also. So we have found a number of partners that are that are huge that they have the resources to build this type of technology. They understand though that the build versus buy, the the build takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of risk. They're not experts in this space. They'd have to hire technologists that they don't have right now that they don't really know how to oversee, and the chance of failure is quite high. So these large organizations, in a lot of cases. They'll opt to, to, to kind of outsource and work with a company that specializes in the area because it de-risks it for them. If it doesn't work out, they, they have someone to blame as well. And if also if it doesn't work out, they can go find another partner to roll it out. And the trade-off, in, if you, you buy it, you might get it for a little bit uh, less in, in the long term. But the speed aspect, everything moves so fast now, you just don't want to go that slow. You don't want to take on a level of risk. And uh, we see a lot of people that decide to, to uh, buy versus build these days. Yeah, and I think that also helps the cost part of it because then since you are specializing in one area, you can offer that to more people and you can bring down the cost long term. And that makes it more available to more people and then again brings the cost down and that will continue. So more people can use these technologies, these solutions that way for lower cost, you know, talking about you know over time of course so so that is kind of the other aspect of it that maybe there were many of these services that existed in the past but only a few could use it because it was so expensive it was so specialized and the impact is now we are getting actually better service and we are getting more common services yeah and to, to add to that i mean the pricing that you get with scale we have over 15 petabytes of data for example so the, our storage costs are minuscule, you know, per provided data compared to a lot of companies with not so much data. So a startup trying to compete with us, they're going to get killed just on the storage costs alone. All right. If you're, or if you're uh, wanting to roll out your own solution, it's going to be much, much more expensive right off the bat right there. So that sort of thing, those economies of scale, you get those with the platform. You don't get those when you, you roll out a solution yourself. And then you also have a team that's dedicated to making sure it's up and somebody to hold accountable and you don't have employees that are just going to walk out the door and, and leave you with a solution that nobody knows how to support, which I've also seen that happen a number of times. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So as we continue and we go and just, you know, we build all of these and more services and lower cost and we expand and, you know, more and more services become available. Also, 
they would become more commonly available and easier to integrate with. So the integration right now is something that, you know, many of these services might exist there, but not super easy to, you know, bring this service, put it next to the other service and integrate it and go to the market. There are even, you know, different standards, not just different clouds like, you know, AWS or GCP or others, but also just different standards that makes it very hard to really for someone to bring them together and just build it. So that's the other part of innovation that is going to happen. And uh, we are going to standardize on that as well. As you said, the size of data, the it helps many of these you know, AI and machine learning technologies to really do better as they gather more data. So over time, do more efficiently. From data perspective, do you see that we are also moving from software to data in many cases, meaning that the value that you offer, serve software might become free. What you are actually offering is the intelligence that exists in the data. So the value comes from the data that you have. Otherwise, software, somebody else could create that software, but with no data, what is the value of that software, right? So many cases I have seen software value is on the data side, actually. And in some cases, even companies do not sell software anymore. They just sell the data. They'd rather to be in data business rather than software business. Have you seen anything like that in your in, in what you have you know, uh, experienced with, with the companies that you know? It's, it, it's definitely a huge differentiator if you have the data. One interesting trend that I've noticed is there's a lot of synthetic data. There's a lot of companies that are generating synthetic video data, which we're starting to dabble in a little bit, but we have found thus far that it's no replacement for, for kind of real world data. Certainly the accuracy of your AI models, vision AI models specifically, can become greatly improved the more data that you have over time, the, the more that uh, it's kind of out in the field and you're able to let that thing run and figure out, hey, look, here's a false positive. Here's a case that was missed, a false negative. Let's feed that back into the model, retrain. Uh, the, the better your model gets overall, and that's a huge competitive advantage that's difficult to, to catch up to. We have an integrated AI ML pipeline, which just basically means that we can take the data that comes from the field, tag it, and wrap it back into our model and then push it back out automatically. So in the long term, that becomes a massive competitive advantage because the efficacy of your solution goes way up. And someone that a new entrant trying to come into the market is going to have a very difficult time matching that when they don't have much data at all. And it remains to be seen if synthetic data and trying to kind of generate data in the lab can overcome that obstacle. Right now, it's, in my opinion, too difficult to make that synthetic data. But who knows if that changes in the future? I would like to ask you also if you would like to share any book that you know with, with the audience and the reason i ask that because normally you know when you read a book that's something that you choose from someone that you know probably you know and if that's the book that you really loved because that is going to be a game changer sometimes you know there are some books that you read of course and you read it you enjoy it there are some books that you read and you say if i have not read this book probably I would not have acted afterward the way I acted. So that essentially impacted my tomorrow. And maybe some books make you, you know, luckier because now you are acting smarter and you know the things that you didn't know before. Is there any particular book or some books that you you feel that way about them, that they have positively impacted, you know, your work and, you know, maybe your life? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's an older book called the, the Four Steps to the Epiphany by Steve Blank. Uh, he was a professor of mine. And it's a it's sort of a, a, a classic at this point, I suppose, in, in startup, startup lore. But what I really enjoyed about that in particular was just that he didn't sugarcoat anything for one. And he was the same way when he was a professor. But it was really about getting out there and grinding and getting getting boots on the ground and, and getting meetings in, in rooms. That's the ma- major takeaway from that is go talk to people. Reality doesn't exist in your in your office, uh, in your conference room, between conversations between uh, co-founders or employees. The reality exists from with the customer, and you have to really understand their problem, have a lot of conversations, and just iterate and try things again and again and again until you find what's right. And that that made a huge impact for me. I mean, there's a lot of other books I've I've read after that that have kind of followed in that same pattern, but the way that he wrote that, the way that he taught it, I thought was fantastic. And so that for somebody starting out, I, I would think that's a good place to, to start. Fantastic. It was a great discussion. And thank you again for being on this show, Jan. Hopefully we will see you again here. Yeah, man, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com. <laughs>